Welcome to Scotch Friday Podcast. My name is Carmel Sacron, and I'm your host. This podcast is part of our leadership series during the COVID-19 pandemic. I call this podcast Global Pandemic Local Solutions. I think the title is fitting because this war to stay safe goes beyond our reliance on the federal and provincial governments. Victory requires the engagement of everyone, from international bodies like the World Health Organization, all the way down to local municipalities and health authorities. We need local action to help keep us safe. My special guest today has had her share of controversies and challenges. I think history will judge this as her biggest challenge thus far, and yet she has stepped in front of the health crisis and active on many fronts in the fight to ensure our safety. Please welcome our Burlington Mayor, Marianne Mead Ward. Marianne, welcome. Thank you, and thanks to all of your listeners. It's great to uh, be with you. <laughs> Happy to have you. You can hear me. I'll, I'll hear you one day. I <laughs> can hear you. Uh, so, okay, so you know how this works. I have to give our listeners a little bit about your personal and professional background, so please indulge me. You're married to Peter, who I know shies away from the limelight. You have three children, <laughs> Miranda, Nick, and Alexandra. In 1989, you obtained your Bachelor of Journalism degree from Carleton University. You have a very long history in communications and media. You're a writer, editor, educator. You've worked for Chatelaine Magazine, Vision TV, Ryerson University, CHCH TV, and you are a weekly columnist for the Toronto Sun. You were elected as mayor in 2018. You're the first, well, second female mayor since uh, Mary Monroe in 1978. You've had your eye on politics since 2006 when you ran against city councillor or then city councillor Rick Craven and you lost. Then you ran for provincial office as MP for Burlington in 2007, losing to Joyce Savile. You returned to journalism. You moved to downtown Burlington Ward 2 and you ran against incumbent Peter Toman in 2010 and you won a seat on city council. You were re-elected in 2014. And then you go big. You run against a two-term <laughs> incumbent mayor, Rick Goldring, and former MP, Mike Wallace, and you win. Yes. You don't give up. And, <laughs> well, you, are not you, afraid of, and you are not afraid of challenges. Not afraid of uh, failure, and you always learn from it. So Wonderful. Now, listeners, you're, you're in your home office. I am. And we're doing this, conducting this interview virtually. So if there's, a, a, you know, some problems in our voice recording, uh, I, I apologize to our listeners in advance. So let's begin. No one really teaches you how to be mayor. There is no handbook. So how do you approach the office of mayor and your responsibilities? Where do you get your cues on being a good mayor? Oh, that's a great question. So there are some some tips, if you will, some breadcrumbs in the Municipal Act. And the Municipal Act defines the mayor as the head of council and the, uh, the, the CEO, the chief executive officer of the corporation. Um, and but beyond that, it doesn't define anything. So you have to figure out what it means <laughs> to be the head of council and, and the CEO of the corporation. So you look where, where you might expect. Uh, uh, residents know that I uh, am currently enrolled in a governance course through the Charter Directors College to 
talk about what it's like to be the chair of a board. Uh, essentially, um, you know, city council functions much that way. And the role of the mayor is very similar to a chair. It is about ensuring voices get heard around the table. It's about making sure the right information comes forward for decision making. It's, uh, it's about trying to get the group together on a consensus to make uh, a decision. And uh, I'll just, add, you know, one recent one that I was really proud of was the tree bylaw that we put in place. And that had been an issue that had been discussed for nine years, uh, all the, my entire two terms. And uh, even before that, and it had been always fractious, four or three votes, uh, typically losing. And finally, uh, we worked really hard as a council uh, with our community, with staff, to try and put something together to balance tree protection, but allowing people where necessary to remove trees uh, and collect some money to plant more. Well, and, well, you're not, sorry, go ahead. Well, and that was a unanimous vote. Well, so, you're not, you're not uh, I mean, it's not foreign to you to sit around a boardroom table. You were a, a board member of the Board of Governors at Joe Brandt. And so you're very, you're very familiar with the process of consensus, discussion, consultation. So, absolutely. And, you know, the, the role of a mayor uh, in municipal councils, it's very different than federal and provincial. You don't have a whip, a party whip to tell your uh, fellow party members how, how to vote. Uh, I would never want that. I, I like the consensus approach. Uh, but you can't tell people how to vote and you can't compel people how to vote. You can't kick them out of your party if they if you don't like what they're doing. You, uh, for better and and or worse, <laughs> you're stuck with the council that the public gives you, which is which is great because it actually forces everybody. You're, you're one voice around that table, but you're a powerful one, but it, it requires us to come to consensus. And I, for me as a decision-making uh, model, I think that's the best one. And, it, and the most uh, similar comparison, of course, is to a board. So what do you think is your primary role during this period in our history? Keep people safe. That is job number one. And they, because, you know, the, the province sets sort of the broad brushstrokes, you know, you have to close facilities till a certain date, but the municipality has to figure out, okay, but how do we still deliver the services the public expects us to? We still have uh, people applying and receiving building permits. We still have our tree folks going out and uh, making sure there's no public hazards. We have actually received very favorable pricing on some of our tenders for road work and road repair. We have to keep our city's infrastructure in good shape. We have to keep our people uh, healthy and safe at the regional level, we're all regional councillors. Uh, you know, the, uh, the water still has to come on, garbage still has to be picked up. So there, there are essential services that our community needs, and we have to deliver those in a safe way for both our employees and staff. That means a whole new way of doing stuff. And that's uh, doing it offline, doing it from the home office, using digital tools. So, uh, you know, I'm happy to say the city has adapted, but but through it all, we have to find not only new ways of delivering those services, but but job number one is keeping our community safe and interpreting how to do that, setting those policies. And, you know, to date, Burlington, among all of our Halton municipalities, has the lowest infection rates. And, and I think that's uh, because of some of the leadership. And it's not just me. You do this as part of a team of council and staff. Uh, but the public has been uh, has been willing to do their share too, and that's that's really tough. To stay home and be isolated is really tough. 
we're going to discuss some specifics, but just before we go down that road, I want to ask you, and, and I've asked uh, one other person that I interviewed, what is what do you think people perceive as good leadership? Compassionate, uh, agile, willing to uh, change when you when you get new information, um, empathy, and a good listener. Right. I think uh, the best leadership consults broadly, but not being afraid to make a decision and stand by it as well. Um, and learn from your learn from your failures. I'm a silver lining person. I think that's a hallmark of good leadership. So in every situation, including this one, uh, you know, we I look for the silver lining. I think there will be good changes to our world after this in terms of how to keep people safe, infection control that will help. Even if we solve COVID, we've still got lots of other infectious diseases, right? There's C. diff, there's SARS, there's the flu. We'll be better equipped to keep our uh, community healthy and safe coming out of this. We've figured out new digital ways to do something. I think the workplace is going to be revolutionized in ways that are helpful, where people don't have that, you know, two-hour commute every day to the office. We've figured out how to give people more time in their day. Uh, through electronic Zoom meetings uh, that that we're all you know very quickly learning. So, I I believe uh, you know good leaders look for those opportunities uh, while going through those difficult uh, times. So, make your decisions quickly, adjust as you need to, and always be kind and compassionate because it's right. never easy. So I'm going to share a personal story with you. Uh, last oh, week, good. Yes. <laughs> Uh, last week, I mentioned to my 14-year-old daughter that I was going to interview you on the show. And to my complete surprise, she immediately responded assertively. She said, she's awesome. Oh, and I said nice. to her, and I turned to her, I was rather surprised. I said, well, how do you know her? And she said, well, I follow her on Instagram. So, so my daughter follows you on Instagram, and it appears that you've made quite an impression with her, my daughter, Grace, and she will not like the fact that I mentioned this story <laughs> to you. But I imagine, I imagine you have made an impression on many other young women. How do you mm -hmm. feel about that? That is a huge honor and a huge privilege. You know, I... Um, I say I say to them, and I, I had an International Women's Day meeting where I had I had girl uh, young women from each of the schools come and meet me for lunch. And uh, you know, you mentioned my uh, my political history there, where I, I lost two elections before I won three. And I I said to them that I don't see those losses even as failures. They were learning experiences. Uh, it it obviously wasn't my time yet. And that's fine. I use the time wisely for something else, but I knew it was right for me too. So sometimes failure is an indication that something's not right. Sometimes failure is an indication that it, it is right, but it try again. And, you know, any successful leader in any field, whether it's sports or politics or business or anything will tell you uh, that they failed more times than they succeeded on the path to succeeding. And so perseverance is key. Um, and you know, learning how to develop a thick skin, right? It, it's a hard balance to uh, be empathetic and to allow yourself to feel uh, the, the pain that your community feels while also making those, those tough decisions that need to be made and be resilient when you get that criticism because it'll come. It does come always and you, and you won't, uh, you know, make people happy. But, you know, if I, if I can inspire 
one woman out there to go into elected office, I will be very pleased because right now in Canada, less than 30% of elected officials at all levels are women and less than 25% of mayors across this country are women. And, and women have, have a different way uh, of doing things. We, um, you know, and we represent half the population. We need to be reflected in the, in the decision-making process, and we're not. And so uh, I always hope that when young, when young women see that there's a, a woman mayor who, as you said, took on a two-term incumbent and a former member of parliament and won, in, the, in a campaign that was the dirtiest election campaign this city has ever seen, uh, amplified by social media, um, it's possible. That success is possible. And I hope that my story gives them the hope they need to try big things, not be afraid of failure, go for their dreams, persevere. Um, and and I'd love to I'd love to sit and have Grace in my office one day when we can do these things again. Well. Look, there's there have been uh, some observations um, commented to me in anticipation of this uh, discussion that Burlington has taken the lead among many municipalities to lead with this uh, to to deal with the pandemic, and, and we'll discuss these points further in detail. But I want to quickly reference uh, that uh, we're one of the first cities in Ontario to call a state of emergency. Absolutely, uh, you, have, you have the COVID nineteen task force committee. Um, you have uh, you've had two telephone town hall meetings. Uh, there's regular information and communications that you're putting out on social media and mainstream uh, mainstream media. And in fact, you're you're challenging us, even though the province recently commented uh, otherwise that to, to keep within a five car procession for celebrations. So so you seem to be a step ahead of this situation, and even challenging the province on how many cars should be in procession. But you are busy. You, you are simply busy. Um, so uh, I'm not going to ask you about your typical day, but, but is the business of city council still being conducted? Absolutely. Yeah, we have a full slate of committee meetings next week. We, we were one of the first councils that got right back to business. So we, uh, we haven't skipped a beat. Uh, we, our last council uh, committee meeting was March 12th. Uh, on March 13th, the province was shut down <laughs> and the city was shut down. We had our next set of, of council, committee and council meetings in April as, as scheduled. And next week, we head into a full round of, of, uh, of committee meetings and big agendas, right? Our last council meeting set a record at eight hours because we were dealing with uh, new reports on the finances, which I know we'll talk about on... Um, uh, on service delivery changes, on all of the things that have been happening, uh, as well as the regular business of the city, which still continues. We're an essential service, so we get to, we get to, well, we we have to, uh, we have to continue to serve our community on the things that they need for their daily lives. So, uh, and you know, if you look at at say Toronto, they hadn't had a council meeting at all until a couple days ago. Um, the the decisions were were all run through um, the mayor, and and I don't mean that as a criticism. I think I think Toronto's doing an awesome job. I think Meritoria is doing an awesome job. It's just different, and and so your question around is the business of the city still going forward? Absolutely, and council is still meeting, committee is still meeting, and and now in addition to the regular business of the city items, we are dealing with uh, COVID emergency items. 
Um, I mean, and, and, and we lifted the five car <laughs> restriction, by the way, because the province provided some clarity, which was great. And, you know, part of our task of decision making, it's not going to get any easier with the pressures to reopen. The province sort of sets the broad parameters we have to interpret. We're going to have to keep interpreting and, and we're not going to be afraid to do that. Right. T- tell me about the telephone hall, uh, town hall meetings. Uh, what inspired mm-hmm. this idea? Well, a lot of it came from some of the council members where they said, you know, there are people that I know in my ward, uh, and it's different by wards. Uh, There's greater proportion in some wards and areas of the city than others where people don't have access to computers or don't use them very much. They're not on social media, Uh, some some by choice, (laughs) Uh, just, you know, to get their information a different way. And and so we thought, how are we going to reach how are we going to invite those people to participate in the conversation? Because we don't want anybody left out. And so um, the telephone ha- town hall, you know, pretty much everybody has a phone. And uh, so we had over 4,000 people on both calls at one point in the call. Uh, the first call was an hour. Uh, and we, we went a little over that. We went an hour and 15. And the second we booked for two hours and we took the full two hours and um you know that we could never have had a regular town hall with that many people we don't have a venue big enough and so what we were talking about earlier about silver linings these are some of the things that we've learned through this that we need to keep doing it's just a good idea it it, it allows people directly in huge numbers to hear directly from their mayor and the, the senior leadership at the city to hear questions, uh, answers to their questions, to ask questions in real time in a, in a size and scale that just isn't possible uh, outside of that venue. So we're, we're going to keep doing that. We're already talking about another town hall and, and doing it regularly, whether that's every two weeks or once a month. Uh, we're not out of this pandemic for months and months. We know this. Uh, there's going to be implications that are with us for a very long time. So we need to keep using those creative ways to connect. Uh, I can imagine your your office is extremely busy with uh, constituent phone calls and inquiries. Uh, what's what seems to be the primary concern of the constituents and the messages and and, and the communications that you're receiving? They're really twofold. Uh, one is folks who are concerned where they see social distancing rules not being followed, and they're very concerned about their health and others. So we get a lot of those calls, what can I do? Or if they are in a workplace as an employee or as a customer and they see uh, practices that aren't being followed, they want to know where to uh, where to report that and, and get some action uh, because that's that's their safety, that's everybody's safety. So we field a lot of those. Uh, and then, and a lot of that we redirect to the Halton Police. There's a COVID hotline phone number, uh, 905-825-4722. So if people are concerned about anything, uh, call that that line, and then that will get filtered uh, to, first of all, the right municipality, but the right department. Ministry of Labor is receiving phone calls around uh, unsafe practices. So if you're an employee that, that it feels concerned about, about what's happening, or you are a customer, you can do that. Uh, the other side is people, um, and this is something I appreciate so much about Burlington residents, they are really trying to do the right thing. And that's why I think our, our numbers are lower than uh, other areas. It's why I think we are uh, relatively healthy. Uh, we've still had, obviously, infections, but people are asking things like, um, 
can I can I put my kayak in the water and and can <laughs> you know uh, that that was one recent one and it, you know I had somebody ask me if they could go for walks with their friend as long as they stayed six feet apart and you know they're really trying to 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 still have some normal life getting out and enjoying exercise doing something because because people in many cases are at home and and not working uh, and so. Uh, so those are the two primary ones we get is expressing concerns and how to enforce the the rules and and what people can do. And we're just going to keep getting more and more of those, both types. So so we know that you've implemented a, uh, you formed a COVID-19 task force. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about this uh, group and what inspired the idea? Who, who are they and what's the purpose? Sure. We um, almost... Right away, uh, before we had even declared a state of emergency, myself and uh, Eric Vanderwall, the president and CEO of Joseph Brandt Hospital, who, as you mentioned earlier, I know well from my days uh, sitting on the board of Joseph Brandt Hospital, um, we he he we started setting up uh, we uh, daily phone calls because COVID is not only an emergency, it's a health emergency. And we knew that the first place that would get slammed if we had a spike would be the hospital. And so how would the city and the hospital be able to work together? Uh, Through those conversations, we felt that, you know, there were other uh, agencies each dealing with the emergency or in their own way. But if we're going to take care of the health of the community, not just physical health, but mental well-being, we need to get all these voices around the table to share expertise. So, you know, the city has an emergency group and the hospital has a pandemic response group and the school board has a group and, and uh, you know, Team Burlington uh, business uh, groups have come together. And so we thought everyone's got an emergency response that they're working on. We all need to talk to each other because there are areas where our work will intersect and we want to make sure we can support and just be aware of, of that. So, um, I asked 50 community leaders and elected officials who represent Burlington to join the task force. They all said yes. Uh, and, and more hands went up in the air in the days after it was announced, people wanting to be part of this and, and be part of a community response. And again, that's, that's something I think uh, I will keep going after the emergency is over to their, you know, municipalities, uh, well, none of us work in a vacuum, and at at some point, our activities do uh, do nudge up um, with other with other work, and 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 we want to be aligned. So, so how often it's do you meet? Great. How, we how the task force right now is weekly. Yeah, it's every week, and there are two council members uh, that have joined me on that. Uh, Councillor Lisa Kearns, who is the council appointee on the Joseph Brent Hospital Board, and Councillor Angelo Bentevania, who has been a fundraiser for the hospital, is a local business person, and, and of course, um, also a councillor. So he wears many hats. Uh, and then every community group uh, that you can think of is represented around that table, as well as police um, you know, we've got uh, military around the table. We've got first responders. We've got the region represented. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, and already one of the first things that the task force put together was uh, a, a group, uh, like a page of resources. Uh, so if you need help, 
one-stop shop. If you have help to give, one-stop shop uh, and, and a whole bunch of resources. If you're an agency involved, here's where the grant money is. If you're a business, here's where the federal and provincial dollars are. So that came out of the task force is we need to get the resources directly to people instead of them having to go in different places to find it. So I imagine you're getting direct reports um, regularly from local health officials. Can you tell me about that? How's that happening? Yes. Yeah, so Halton Region is uh, obviously is where public health sits for us in a two-tier municipality, and they do daily updates. They have a, a page directly from their homepage. So halton.ca, um, you can see uh, the age of, of people infected. You can see uh, how many, what the numbers are by municipality, and uh, you can see where the outbreaks are, whether it's long-term care, home outbreaks, or hospital, or you know, if a workplace even had one, uh, that would be reported. So, and then there's a lot of really helpful information and links to other areas as well. So that's again one one-stop shop, one page on Halton, and that is updated daily. Can you? Uh, how did you come to learn about the temporary 93-bed pandemic unit at Joe Brand? I'm, I'm assuming Eric called you and said, we're going to be doing this. Can, yeah. can you tell me about that conversation? Absolutely. So as part of our conversations, uh, he said, you know, we need to be ready in case there's a surge of cases because um, not only is COVID deadly to some people who get it, and, and yes, there are vulnerable populations, but there are also people who just get it and can't, their body can't fight it. And, and so it's deadly. Uh, so there's that. But, but the other issue is even if, it's, even if we can treat people, if they all present at the hospital at the same time, because this thing spreads like wildfire, then you've got a surge and it's not so much that we don't have the ability to care for people is that we don't have the resources. We've been overwhelmed and the hospital has been overwhelmed. And we've seen that in other countries where um, they, they have the know-how to treat this, you know, ventilators and other things, but they don't have enough because all of a sudden they went from nobody needing one to thousands of people needing one overnight. And so to handle that potential surge and the modeling that uh, that the province had, which they eventually, um, you know, and, and kudos to them, released to the public, uh, the hospital also had that modeling predicting we're going to we're going to see a surge in mid in mid April. Well, uh, well, we need to be ready. You and I know Eric, and and I think he'd we'd agree that he's future thinking. He's a, he's a future absolutely. Thinker. He's always looking ahead. And, and I, to my knowledge, I think Joe Brandt is, is the first hospital in Ontario or maybe the only hospital that has, has created such a temporary pandemic unit. I don't know of any other hospital that has done. There, there isn't. Yeah, there, there isn't one. And so, you know, the, dealing with a pandemic like this is, it, you're right, he, uh, he'd be a great one for a podcast, by the way. <laughs> I'm sure you've asked him. But uh, is you look at the modeling and you say, okay, if nothing changes, if behavior doesn't change based on this disease, we're going to see this kind of spike in cases and we only have this many beds. Therefore, we need to prepare. Then you start at layering in all of the restrictive measures and the fact that people did immediately, especially in, in Burlington, start to social distance as soon as you know, for the most part. And so all of a sudden the trajectory, we flat we did bend it. And so Instead of the worst Can case scenario, you share scenario, those numbers with us, Marianne. Just 
quickly? Can you I don't, show us? I, I could, but I, I don't have them off the top of my head. Okay, no worries. Yeah, they, it, it was just showing essentially that would be over 100% capacity. And as soon as you're there, then, then you're, you're in trouble because you can't properly treat people if you, if you don't have enough capacity. So, um, so, the, so the projection was by mid-April, uh, we're going to hit this peak. In order to deal with that, we need to get a pandemic in place, obviously, before that. So you, you have to back up your decision-making in anticipation. Then uh, the measures started working, and people were listening. And so the curve got flattened. But uh, so, the, so the unit is still there. It has not been needed to be used because of a whole pile of other measures that they also took to release capacity in the hospital, you know, not doing a lot, certain surgeries and so forth. Um, they can now start talking about that. But the other thing that then came in on the side and, and kind of hit us all was the communal living congregate living situation. So that's long-term care, that's uh, group homes, that's domiciliary hostels, uh, you know, those kinds of uh, homeless shelters where people are in close contact. And and so uh, now we have this pandemic response unit, if needed, to, uh, to deal with some of those uh, issues in those homes as well. So I'm just conscious of time, and I, I want to try and cover this very quickly. Uh, communications with other levels of government, like the province and, and the federal government. What kind of communications are you are you currently having with those levels of government? So we are working very closely through our elected uh, officials. So my office is in almost daily conversation with our uh, local MPP, Jane McKenna, and she also briefs uh, the other two MPs that have a part of Burlington. So Pam. Um, uh, Pam's at the federal level, but F.E. Trianta Philopolis at the uh, provincial Parm Gill. Uh, we're in regular touch. We we uh, um, make sure that Karina Gould, her office, as well as Adam Van Coverden. So we've got a six elected representatives uh, that have some part of Burlington. We keep them all apprised. <clears throat> I'm also part of the large urban mayor's caucus, and we uh, we have we had a meeting last week. We have one coming up this week to and, and ministers, uh, provincial ministers join us. Uh, so we have direct uh, access and collaboration there and through our Association of Municipalities of Ontario and Federation of Canadian Municipalities. So Councillor Nissan is our representative for Halton on FCM. So we have lots of channels for direct uh, contact. We're using every one of them. Would you agree that uh, this level of communication, the, the, the mayor's ability to get your message right up to the premier's office and the prime minister's office is unprecedented? Would you agree with that? I well, I don't have an experience before now, <laughs> so right. I'm I'm uh, I'm a mayor in a pandemic in my first year in office, so it's looking all good to me. I don't know what it was like before, but. Um, you know what i what i have seen and i think what we've all seen is the setting aside of partisanship and so people uh setting aside party politics and saying look we're going to work together the it doesn't do the community any good to see different levels of government fighting in a pandemic and so the collaboration that we've seen across party lines at the at those levels has been outstanding um and, and municipalities being a part of that conversation. And I, that, again, that's one of the things I hope is a learning that comes out and lasts longer than COVID. 
that we learn a better way of doing democracy where we're not divided by partisanship, we're united on, on serving our community. And, and certainly a stronger role and voice for municipalities. I, I think everyone has seen we're on the front lines uh, and with limited tools. So, so we're hearing, uh, we're now starting to hear a conversation about reopening up our region. Uh, and um, I know that there's a Halton Mayor's Recovery Coordination Group. Yes. Uh, can you tell me about that group and, and how this reopening might, might happen? So the four Halton mayors have come together to uh, really coordinate our efforts to um, to reopen and redesign our communities because we know that we're not going back to business as usual after this, and and we really shouldn't because there's lots of good changes that I think can happen out of as a result of our learnings. So we want to make sure that we are sharing information with each other and to the degree possible making uh, decisions that are the same. So. You know, a great example would be, you know, when the time comes to lift the declaration of emergency, we want to make sure we all do it at the same time and with the region. I think that's uh, best for our community so that all there's a one Halton response message. It's not confusing or this patchwork of there's still emergency over there, but not there. We need the province, obviously, to go first. We can't uh, we can't lift anything if their provincial emergency orders are still in place. But as soon as they do, uh, our mayors will be ready to work together uh, with the region. So the five of us, the four mayors and the regional chair, to uh, to align that. And that's just one example. There, we are going to be making decisions uh, for months about, uh, you know, the province sort of sets the parameters of who can open, like parks uh, coming up. We know that's coming, but they don't. They, they kind of leave the fine grain details to us. So again, we want to make sure that we're you know, because our people go between municipalities. We want to make sure that there's consistent messaging. And I think that's better for the public because it's not confusing. They get one message. They get one, uh, you know, consistent set of uh, suggestions around how to keep themselves safe. So uh, so that's what we're all about. And, um, and we meet every week. And it's great. So let's move away a little bit from uh, COVID. I, I, I know there's another uh, issue that is important to council and the city. Uh, I saw a recent announcement from provincial officials that there is no longer a provincial requirement for a mobility hub to be included in municipal official plans. And I yes. know this, this is important to you. City Council have pushed for its removal. Why is this important? What is it and why is this important? So the mobility hub and uh, major transit station area designations were put by the province on downtown Burlington. And uh, the MTSA uh, specifically was used to justify overdevelopment downtown. Uh, we lost a significant Ontario Municipal Board case that allowed a 26-story building downtown because it was near our little uh, bus terminal, which is a designated MTSA. And uh, we put the interim control bylaw in place for a year to study the role and function because in provincial policy, there was no distinction between our little bus terminal that has 300 people uh, a day going through it and Pearson Airport, which is also an MTSA that has a million people a day. So, you know, clearly the kind of development that is... Um, warranted around those MTSAs that have different volumes would be very different. But 
but there was no distinction in provincial policy. So we also recognize that we want to direct growth to our GO stations because the, the uh, really when you look at provincial policy and the study results of the study that we did are that they should really be on higher order, frequent transit, uh, inter-regional transit. That's your GO station. And, and we think the MTSAs should be there. We have one already uh, at the Burlington GO. So it's about directing growth where it should be and, and, and where it belongs in terms of the, the, uh, the most dense growth. So we said it really doesn't make sense to have an MTSA downtown with a little bus terminal. It makes a whole lot of sense at the GO stations. And we need your help because you designated it that way in the first place. We need you to fix it. And then we got the letter saying, yep. Green light, go ahead. So we, we have uh, some, some T's to cross and I's to dot to make that happen, but that is great news for the community. Well, Marianne, we're uh, sadly out of time, but do you have any final messages to the people of Burlington? I just want to say how proud I am of, of uh, our community. They have stepped up to help each other, to keep each other safe, to make sure that, that everybody who is in need, whether that's food or a visit, uh, is looked after. And, you know, I've just been, I've been so proud. The ingenious, creative ways people have found to come together, even in the midst of a global pandemic. And I can say, and I've, I've said this many times, it makes my job as mayor easier because I have such a great community to serve. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Your Worship. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you to all city councillors. Uh, to city staff, and to all those working to keep our city operating and, and looking out for our best interests. Thank you even to the sanitation and garbage collectors and recycling workers. Thank you to everyone who helps run this city. Um, I'm sure our listeners are very thankful that they still have garbage pickup and recycling pickup. And yeah. <laughs> it still is. I know there's regional responsibilities there, but thank you to everyone that keeps our municipality operating. We are indebted to each and every one of you and to our mayor. We are so very proud of your strong leadership during these scary times. So thank you to you and everyone else. Uh, please remember, to our listeners, please, please remember to have your say and go to our comment section on our website, scotchfridays.ca. My name is Carmel Sacron, and I thank you for listening to this podcast. Until next Friday, goodbye and be safe. <laughs>